Hey, and welcome to the 404 Forum, the show for Atlanta sports fans to sound off on the latest in the 404 sports scene. I'm your host, Isaiah, and I'll be here to guide you through the triumphs and the tragedies of sports around the 404. It won't always be pretty, but I can promise you it will be fun. So ATL, let's talk. Hello, Atlanta. This is your host of the 404 Podcast, Isaiah Smith, coming to you guys for another week of sports talk here. Um, ready to just kind of kick it around, chop it up about what's been going on around the 404 of late. Um, this week, it'll just be me, so you guys are stuck with me, unfortunately. Um, won't have a co-host to kind of give some, give a little bit of extra flavor and color, but nonetheless, I'm still ready to kick it around and chop it up and, and really dig into some of the issues and some of the things going on, especially with college football. As we know, kind of this weird, fluky, if you want to call it that, season has, has kind of come to a, a close and is beginning to wind down, and you're seeing some teams Um, Make some decisions, and some of them business decisions, some of them decisions that we may or may not like. Um, But nonetheless, some decisions are being made about how this thing is going to play out going into the holidays and where some some people are going to be standing and where they're going to lie and and the way some things are going to shape up here at the end of the season. But, you know, first off, before we get into that, just want to send, you know, my thoughts and prayers out to Keontae Johnson, the the young Florida basketball player who, you know, collapsed on the court. I believe it was last weekend in a Saturday matchup, Um, you know, hearing good, you know, better things, I guess, out of Gainesville and out of, um, you know, from his family um, down there. And, you know, never want to see that happen to a player, just a scary incident, a scary situation all around when you see a guy. Um, just kind of collapsed for what appeared like no apparent reason out of a timeout. So really, really, really are, you know, here on the podcast and me personally as a, as a sports fan, you know, team loyalties and whatnot aside, um, there really is just something that, that's scary to see. and You never want to see happen in sports, but, you know, you realize it, it could happen um, at any moment to, to anyone. So, you know, really just want to um, send my, you know, positive thoughts and well wishes out. Hope to see him make a full recovery. Hope the doctors can do everything in their power to figure out what's wrong or what was wrong. Um, get that fixed and, you know, get that young man back out on the court because we know, you know, he loves to play. He's a very good player, was, I believe, preseason, you know, pick for um, SEC Player of the Year. So definitely a guy that's got some talent that probably has a, that has a bright future, definitely has a bright future ahead of, ahead of him, either in the game of basketball um, and outside of it. So really hope to see the best happen there and with his situation. But it was good to hear today that, you know, he had – uh, his, his situation had improved from what it had been, you know, earlier, you know, back throughout the weekend and earlier in the week for sure. Um, but, you know, just kind of jumping in, you know, with both feet here, going to go ahead and start talking some college football. We're going to have a college football heavy show today. So it'll be mostly college football. So love it, hate it, indifferent to it. Um, that's what it's going to be for for the next little bit. So, you know, I, I just like it with any season, College football's winding down, maybe a little later than we're used to. I believe this weekend would normally be the the weekend after championship weekend in a normal year. But as we all know, we're not in a normal year. We're in COVID times or an abbreviated year, a year with an asterisk or whatever you want to call it. Um, but nonetheless, we're, we're still seeing some of these the normal things that you would see at this point in the season start to happen. And I think one of those things is is the coaching carousel. It's beginning to spin. Um, you're beginning to see some guys get fired, some guys leave for better or more lucrative jobs. You're beginning to see, you know, just kind of what the lay of the land is going to look like. The rumors are beginning to kick up and and kicker and be kicked around um, about who may get fired after their game this weekend or who you know is on the hot seat if they don't win this weekend and things of that nature 
And, you know, a couple of high-profile openings have come available. You know, Vanderbilt and uh, Derek Mason have decided to part ways. Um, that's kind of old news. But also, you've, you've got had some other jobs come open, some that maybe some people thought were, you know, wouldn't come open. And even in this in this year um, with COVID-19 and it being kind of a weird abbreviated year, um, I think we're going to see a few more coaching changes as the offseason progresses or as, you know, teams actually in their seasons or we see where bowl game, where their teams are headed bowl game wise and things of that nature. I think we're still going to see some changes. However, I don't know that we're going to see the number of changes we would see in a normal year, given the weirdness of the year, you know, teams are going to say, Oh, well, let's chalk it up to COVID chalk it up to not having spring and summer and having all that time with your team and those types of things, you know, cause in a normal year, I think James Franklin has already been fired at Penn state. And that's just the bottom line. You know, he just was not good. You know, their team was not good and, you know, he was not good enough this year or had, had not been over the past couple of seasons. However, I, I think James Franklin gets a, rep- a reprieve. James Franklin will, you know, be back as the football coach of Penn State. And you can say that for a couple other guys. I think, you know, Jim Harbaugh up in uh, in, in Michigan could be one of those guys. Um, Scott Frost, maybe not, you know, maybe a year where it would have been make or break, but he may get a reprieve and get two more years instead of the one more year um, out in Nebraska. And there, there are a few more other guys you, you could maybe add that list as well but you know just kind of looking at the coaching carousel as it sits now uh, and specifically digging into the sec um you know there are really three current openings high profile openings that are open slash were open um and those three are, are pretty pretty market they're pretty big names and, and especially if you're a georgia fan that's kind of the way we're going to attack this we're going to keep it relevant to the 404 but talk about you know maybe branch out and talk about a few different things but nonetheless we're going to kind of relate this back to georgia and kind of ask the question to start which sec school has the potential to make the most threatening hire to the georgia bulldogs coming into the 2021 season um you know south carolina gonna kind of kick off with them you know south carolina was not very good with will muschamp well, Muschamp had his own issues, as we've seen and been able to chronicle. He did probably have his one shining moment last year with the victory over Georgia between the hedges and those types of things um, and in a game that kept the Bulldogs out of the college football playoff, which is what we came to find out later on toward the end of the season. But, however, um, South Carolina has their guy. They've got their guy in Shane Beamer. He's been induced. He's had his press conference. He's put on the jacket and held the helmet with the president and chancellor and all those people at the university. And now it's almost time to get to work. Um, You know, he's a former UGA special teams coordinator and he was excellent at that position, you know, in the time he was there, those couple of seasons or maybe even one season, you know, Shane Beamer was a dog on the recruiting trail. He helped pull in some big name guys and help, you know, shape this program into what we see it as today, the the juggernaut and monster that we can kind of, we see it becoming and expect it to be, Um, you know, Shane Beamer, the son of Frank Beamer, you know, legendary Virginia Tech coach, all those things. He's got the pedigree. He's got the name. He's been in several successful, you know, teams, organizations, whatever you want to call them after moving to Oklahoma to be the associate head coach there. Um, and, you know, he's been one of the top assistants in the country. He's one of those guys that has fallen from that, if you want to call it the Kirby Smart tree or whatever you want to start calling that now. Um, but I, but you knew it was only a matter of time. He was a young, bright guy who you knew was going to get his shot. But being truthful, I'm not sure what Shane Beamer looks like at, at USC, at South Carolina. Um I think he's got the tools. He's got the ability to coach up prospects. I think he's got the tools to get the prospects in. He can turn South Carolina into a solid team and and make that a solid job to have. 
But looking at the lay of the land at South Carolina, it begs the question, are they more than about a 10-win-a-year school? I mean, Clemson, you know, is right there. Alabama's right here. Florida is right there. Georgia is right there. So with all this, the marquee programs, you know, South Carolina, you used to think when Spurrier was there was a program that could turn that corner and turn into one of these marquee programs. But Clemson kind of outpaced them when Dabo Sweeney got there and did what he did, made the turnaround that he made and got Deshaun Watson and then had, um, you know, the guys he's gotten in there with, you know, Trevor Lawrence and Uyunglele and those guys. Clemson gets who they want. And so with that, if Clemson's getting the cream of the crop, Georgia's sliding in, getting the cream of the crop that doesn't intend Clemson. Alabama's got their foot in the state. Florida's got their foot in the state, potentially getting some other high-profile guys. You know, Tennessee's right there with Jeremy Pruitt, who thinks he can and he can recruit very well. You know, there's only so much talent to go around. So not that I doubt Shane Beamer's ability to recruit, but – I'm not sure how much talent is going to be left when the teams that can come into South Carolina and harvest the state, namely Clemson, who, who owns the state, um, will do what they do there. Um, but I think it's it's up to Beamer to to get South Carolina back to relevancy. They're they're not relevant, haven't been relevant for the past couple of seasons outside of you know the fluky win against Georgia, like I talked about earlier. But, you know, I think if you're Shane Beamer, the goal is consistently in the top 25, nine nine or ten wins a year. The same spot that Steve Spurrier had South Carolina in before he decided to step away from it, I think that realistically may be their ceiling. And a coach that can get get the team there, I really and truthfully do believe he will have some stay in power and can hang there for 10, 12, 15 years or as long as he he wants to. Um, I think South Carolina fans now understand the – the level that their program is where they are. I also think that South Carolina fans, you know, miss the relevancy of being a team that that is consistently in that ballpark. So nonetheless, I really and truthfully do believe that may be Shane, Shane Beamer's ceiling, not a talk down, not to, to, you know, speak ill or anything of that nature. But I just think there, there are some constraints there that because of who you're going up against, your in-state rival in Clemson, um, the teams that are in your back in your backyard, the Georgias, the Floridas, who are a little further away, but even you know the North Carolinas, um, you know, my, my, um, you know they're doing a great job um, with what they're building there, and it, it's going to be tough. It's a tough sell to get guys to come to that program after they've had the down years, and South Carolina hasn't traditionally been great outside of the few years that Steve Spurrier was there with them, and they were very good those few years, you know, in in the times that they competed and and won the SEC East and competed for an SEC title. So I think South Carolina has a definite ceiling um, as far as that goes. And same goes for the the next job, the Vanderbilt job. You know, they've got their guy as well. Clark Lay is a guy from that area. I think he's perfect for that job. Um, Clark Lay was a guy who we went to Vanderbilt. He's from the Nashville area, so he's a hometown guy. I think he's another guy who – is looking at a program that could say, hey, if we're eight, nine, ten wins, you know, if they're, you know, an improvement over this year would be one or two wins if you're Vanderbilt. But realistically speaking, trying to get that program back to six, seven, eight, nine wins, bowl eligibility year in, year out, where James Franklin had them, where Derek Mason had them when he started. Um, and, you know, seeing just seeing some tweets and different things like that, people say, you know, the Vanderbilt job is a hard job to have, which is true. Um, you're playing in the best conference in football at a market disadvantage because of the entrance requirements of Vanderbilt. You're 
there's a certain level, there's a certain type of student they want at Vanderbilt, and you're playing at a disadvantage because a lot of guys, you know, aren't scoring at that level on their standardized test, and that's just the way it is. But I do think um, that, you know, Clark Lay is going to be a a good thing for the Vanderbilt program. He's going to put in the work. He knows how to coach the defensive side of the ball. We've seen that at at Wake Forest. We've seen it in his time as a defensive coordinator at Notre Dame. You know, he's got two top 13 finishes in scoring defenses and two top 30 finishes in total defense in two seasons at Notre Dame. Um, And, you know, he's he's a guy that a lot of people think can flat out coach football. Um, he's not an in-your-face typical defensive coordinator. He's not going to yell and cuss and scream till he's blue in the face and act a fool. Um, but he's he's going to be just a guy who's going to be calm, who's going to explain what needs to happen, who's going to tell you when you're wrong, praise you when you're right. And quite frankly, he earns the respect of his players in that way, which is the most important thing. It doesn't always matter how you do it. It's just a matter of can you earn the guy's respect, and if you can't, you know, and if you can't, you need to learn how or you're not going to be there very long. But I think his players respect him. I think he's not one thing you're going to see him do is he's going to get his guys to play hard. He doesn't care if you're the the guy that's going to be drafted in the upcoming draft or the lowest freshman on the totem pole. He's going to look for guys that play hard who and who, you know, execute his system, who who live through or who live out his defensive principles and, and execute those on the field. So I I really do think he's going to be the, a good guy for the Vanderbilt job. They'll be competitive. They'll be tough. They'll be hard-nosed. Um, and you won't see Vanderbilt phoning it in with a few games left in the season, um, COVID or no COVID. Um, I think he's gonna see, you're going to see him bringing kids that will fight, that are invested, that want to be at Vanderbilt in the same way that he wants to be at Vanderbilt as a coach, the same way he wanted to be at Vanderbilt as a player when he played there a, a few you know years ago. Um, but looking at Clark Lay and, and Vanderbilt, it's to me, it's sort of a Jeff Collins, Collins situation. Um, those first couple years, you're going to take it on the chin for, for different reasons. Obviously, Vanderbilt has been a program that's been down for the last few years, if we're going to be realistic and honest about it. Um, Georgia Tech in a similar fashion, but in a similar or has been down for a few years, but for similar or for different reasons. Um, Georgia Tech, you know, Jeff Collins coming in, had to adapt that offense and that personnel grouping from a triple option attack to his, you know, run first, you know, ground and pound type system. So with, you know, the adaptations Collins is going to have to make, it's going to take him a full cycle to kind of get things the way he wants them to be with getting his players in, getting those bigger physical offensive linemen, getting a quarterback who can kind of be a play action guy, not a guy who's going to use his, look, use his legs all the time. And, you know, letting those guys mature in his system. A lot of those guys will play early. Um, as we saw with their freshman quarterback, as we saw the last couple of years using some young guys on defense. But as those guys continue to play, as they age in the system, as they get more comfortable, gain experience, and in game getting game reps, they're going to be competitive. Georgia Tech is is going to be a competitive team. We didn't see it last year. We saw it in stretches this year. We'll see it more next year, and I really think in year four you can really look for Georgia Tech to be a competitor and be a factor in the ACC race, not to say they're going to win it or take it from Clemson or Notre Dame if they stay in the conference or Miami or whoever, but I do think they will continue to be increasingly competitive. You'll see their talent pipeline continue to get increasingly better if you know Collins can keep winning and attracting that top-tier talent in the state because he's in arguably the most the most talented state in the uh, 
in the country to recruit from in the state of Georgia, right there in the heart of Atlanta. So looking at Vanderbilt, it's a similar situation. Um, it's going to be year one. You're still going to take it on the chin. Year two, you'll take it on the chin a little bit less. Year three, um, hopefully you're looking competitive. You're in a lot of games. And year four, you know, if Clark Lake can, can stay that long, which I think he will, um, you're looking at being, you know, a competitor. Who knows if you'll compete for the East or not. But Georgia won't come beat you 60 to nothing. Um, you won't You won't be laughed off the field. Um, you'll you'll look like a football team. And I think if you're Vanderbilt, that's got to be the goal, to beat the beat the bottom feeders and be in the middle of the pack. Stay around that middle of the pack. You're going to have years where you're not as good. But nonetheless, stay consistent and build a good football team. But getting to the, to the, to me, to the meat of the question, the one team with a vacancy that scares me the most with the hire they can make um, is Auburn. Because they've got a chance to hire a guy that I thought should have been on Georgia's staff and Kirby Smart's second or third year, and that guy is Hugh Freeze. Um, you know, Hugh Freeze coming back to the SEC scares the life out of me, um, especially coming to a team that the University of Georgia would have to see year in and year out on a yearly basis. You know, a lot of people think Kevin Steele, the defensive coordinator, has emerged because certain boosters like him or whatever reason he's spent time cultivating those relationships or whatever. Um, and Kevin Steele, I'm sure, is a good football coach. Auburn's defense is always top-notch. They always get in guys who can play on that side of the ball. But nonetheless, looking at the guys they could get, Kevin Steele is not the scariest name on the board. It's definitely, without a doubt, Hugh Freeze. Um, Hugh Freeze has big-game SEC experience. Um, and for Georgia, you know, with his offensive prowess, if you freeze can find a guy who can run the defense, you know, who can, you know, make them serviceable and confident at year in and year out and have a solid, tough, hard-nosed defense, the way they had when he was at Ole Miss with, you know, Kendichi and the Landshark defense and those things, that can be a scary proposition. Auburn is known for being able to get great defensive linemen. Look at the defensive lines they've had over the past two or three years. Um, Hugh Freeze is known as a guy who can recruit. He can find athletes. He can find secondary talent. Um, so if he has someone that can coach those guys up and get that young talent playing well, that could be scary. And you know he's an offensive genius on that side of the ball. You know what he can do. You've seen him do it with Ole Miss. You've seen him do it with Chad Kelly. You've seen him do it with Bo Wallace. You've seen him do it with a bunch of different guys. And and it, it, it's a scary proposition to think about Hugh Freeze coming back, You know, going to Liberty, getting kind of his second chance to bounce back. And bouncing back, going nine and one with Liberty, putting them in a position to be in a bowl game. Um, they should be in a bowl game. Um, maybe not a New Year Six, but a bowl game nonetheless. And it's it's an interesting proposition. It, the question is, you know, will he get get that shot in the SEC again in the SEC West after being dismissed over the uh, the scandal of calling escorts on a school issued phone, which we all know you cannot do. But nonetheless, if Hugh Freeze gets another shot, I think Hugh Freeze is a scary name to to consider. Another name I don't like at, at the at Auburn that I think they could very well go out and get uh, something they could make a reality is Steve Sarkeesian. Um, Steve Sarkeesian can flat out call plays. Before Steve Sarkeesian was dismissed from USC, USC was looking like they were on the way back. USC looked like a team that was on the way back, that was on the rise. And before, you know, he had his issues with, with alcoholism and things of that nature and was dismissed. And obviously we know how that story went. And then he, you know, reemerged. It, um, you know, reemerged in, in some other places and had a stint in the NFL with the Falcons and then came back to Alabama and was the offensive coordinator and has that offense clicking on all cylinders. You know, just look at that Alabama offense. Lane Kiffin may have started 
the revitalization and reinventation of that offense. But Steve Sarkeesian furthered it. He took it to another level. He's got Mac Jones balling. I um, mean, you know, throwing the ball to Waddle before he got hurt, throwing it to Devontae Smith, throwing it to all those guys, you know, last year having Ruggs and Judy and those guys and had two of, you know, putting the ball on those guys before his injury as well. So Steve Sarkeesian can call plays. He can coach the offensive side of the ball. It's another another case where if they can – find a guy to to run that defense and make that side of the football competent the way it always is at Auburn, that's another scary hire. We know you've got a score in college football. It doesn't matter how good your defense is. We know that to win a championship, to beat the Clemsons, to beat the Alabamas, to beat the Ohio State, you've got to have a team that can put points on the board. You're not going to win games seven to six anymore. You've got to put points on the board. And getting a coach in who knows how to do that in the head coach spot that can call plays, I think is is so important and almost puts you a little bit ahead of the eight ball when you've got an offensive coordinator who can get if he can get on the same page with your head coach, it's dangerous. Look at, you know, look at Kansas City. I know that's an NFL example and maybe on a bigger scale. But look at Eric Bieniemy and Andy Reid. Even though Andy Reid calls the plays, Bieniemy's you know involved in the game planning, involved in making sure Mahomes is developed, he's sharp, he's ready to go. That his skill guys are know what they're doing, they're executing, they're doing what they're supposed to do in, in the funny formations and things like that. Um, so when you can get two guys on the same page coaching up that side of the ball, it can be dangerous and it, it can lead to to championships, and that because that's what you need. Um, so for me, you know, Shane Beamer, you know, kind of recapping Shane Beamer is a little scary, but he's still not putting the fear into me, the fear of God. I think that a name like Hugh Freeze being at Auburn or Steve Sarkeesian, if he, you know, if he can prove that he can recruit and can figure out the defensive side of the ball would put into, into Georgia fans having to see that year in and year out and having to, to play them and contend with them, make sure your defense is up to the, to the, to the, level to stop that offense because you are you know Florida is going to be tough. You know South Carolina is going to be tougher. You know Tennessee is looking to get tougher. They're going to be better if, as long as Pruitt keeps trending in the direction he's going. It may not be an all-out rebuild. It may not be at the top of the mountain in two to three years, but he, they will continue trending upward if they can get some things figured out. So with that in mind, you know, having that crossover game being that much tougher – it, it, it may it clouds the, the picture a little bit. It makes it tougher to get to that ultimate goal of being in number one, the SEC championship in a college football playoff uh, playoff berth every single year, um, which I'll talk a little bit, a little bit more about later for Georgia uh, nonetheless. But that's just kind of, kind of the, the direction seeing that coaching carousel move and shape. Um, those are just a couple of observations that, that I've made, and, and I'm sure you guys have made as well, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So feel free to reach out, chime in on, on Facebook, or chime in you know, on Anchor and leave me a voice message and let me know what you think. So kind of going to jump forward here and still staying in college football. Um, going to look at the Heisman Trophy. You know, it's, you know, we ask every year. It's a big debate. We have a lot of fun with it. Who should win the Heisman Trophy? It's always fun to talk about. It's always fun to – Imagine, especially early and through the mid portion of the year, so a mid major guy or a guy from a smaller school, not mid major, excuse me, but a guy from a smaller school winning it or a lesser known guy coming out of nowhere and kind of taking it from one of these big schools. But, you know, in in looking at, in looking at this award in 2020 and the odd year that it's been, um, you know, it begs the question, you know, what is the award that you kind of to me with these awards, with playoff berths, with all those things, you know, anything that's subjective like this that could be I could have one opinion and you could have another. 
you have, I like to get back to the meat of what is the award, define the award, define who it's supposed to go to, and then look objective, look, try to look as objectively as possible anyway at all the possible candidates. So the, the Heisman Trophy is supposed to go to the most outstanding college football player in the country, the best player. You know, I, I interpret that to mean the best player. So unfortunately, over the past few years, that award has turned into an award that traditionally goes to the best quarterback on the best team or Alabama's best running back in, in the occasional off year. Since 2000, I believe one winner hasn't fit either into either of those categories. And technically, he's not even a winner. It was 2005, Reggie Bush won the award. Um, otherwise, it's been all quarterbacks or Alabama running backs um, with, I believe, Mark Ingram and Derrick Henry. So with that in mind, you know, it, it feels in this odd year, maybe there should be some odd things happening with the Heisman. You know, you've got two quarterbacks in the SEC who are vying, Mac Jones and Kyle Trask. Both of them are very good, exceptional players. Both of them can sling it around the yard and have gotten multiple opportunities to do so this season. And it's been fun to watch. But in looking at at them, you know, it begs the question, yes, they're very good players and, and they're great players and may go on to NFL careers after this season. But are they even the best players on their own teams? I mean, if we're, you know, we're really looking at it, you know, and thinking about the quarterback position, Trevor Lawrence missed time. Justin Fields looked like the front runner for a bit, but has, hasn't looked as sharp of late. He still looks pretty good. Mac Jones and Kyle Trask are kind of the leaders in the clubhouse, but are they even the best players on their own teams? I mean, if you're talking about the pure football players, Mac Jones is not the best football player on Alabama's team. Same for Kyle Trask. As a matter of fact, Kyle Trask isn't even the best guy named Kyle on his side of the football. Kyle Trask, you know, Kyle Pitts arguably is better than Kyle Trask. If Kyle Pitts doesn't miss time, we can insert Kyle Pitts right into this discussion as well. But nonetheless, you know, Mac Jones is behind, I think, uh, you know, Najee Harris, arguably. Um, Mac Jones is definitely behind Devontae Smith. If we're looking at it from a football player standpoint, he's probably behind Jalen Waddle, um, Dylan Moses, some of those other defensive guys who are going to be drafted. So looking at the lay of the land, I think you've you've gotta make a case at least for Devontae Smith from Alabama for you know being the front runner in this whole race, I think. You know, he owns basically every receiving record at the University of Alabama. Um, unless something crazy happens in this SEC championship, he will be the leading receiver in in college football. He will, you know, have done everything. He will check all the boxes except throwing the ball to himself for that, for that matter. You know, with Jalen Waddle out, he stepped up, and it begs the question as well, if – Jalen Waddle doesn't go out. Are we even having this conversation? Because they're, you know, splitting touches. They're both running routes. They're both getting open. And so probably a few less balls come Devontae Smith's way with Waddle, with Waddle in the lineup. But things shook out the way they are. Um, looking at Devontae Smith, he is the FBS leader in receiving. He's number seven in the FBS with 17 total touchdowns. And he straight up does it all for Alabama. He does it in the return game. He does it receiving. He can take a handoff and break the game wide open. Um, you know, for me, last Saturday, Kyle Trask losing takes some of the luster off of him for me. Um, but a big-time SEC championship game could put him right back in in the conversation. Um, Mac Jones is probably still a favorite considering the criteria, the newest criteria of the Heisman Trophy 
being best player or best quarterback on the best team. However, if Devontae Smith comes out and balls on Saturday and gives me, you know, a buck 50, you know, two touchdowns, a couple big returns, or even a touchdown in a return game, and, you know, takes the Jets sweep, you know, for 45 or 50 yards, he could easily reinsert himself into, you know, or not, I don't even guess reinsert is the word, but push himself to the top of the of the Heisman race and say, hey, no, 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 bring that trophy over here. It's coming to Alabama, but it's coming to the receiver, not with the quarterback. Um, so I think, you know, against Florida secondary as well, he's got more than enough potential to be able to, turn in that big monster outing. Now, you know, Mac Jones is going to be the guy throwing him the football. But if Mac Jones, you know, has a repeat of last week and doesn't have many touchdowns or has no touchdowns, then that could also open the door for Devontae Smith. So I'm sure he's thinking, you know, SEC championship first, getting that playoff undefeated, be the number one seed, have everything kind of flowing through you. But all, all that aside, you know, Heisman Trophy is a pretty sweet, it's a pretty sweet deal too. And to be one of the only guys playing a position not at the quarterback or not not a quarterback to win that award would be awesome. I'm sure for him, and I'm sure he's thought about it and 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 had had some conversations about it as well. So all that in mind, that's just some stuff to think about as as we approach Championship Saturday here coming up um, uh, in in just a few days actually. But nonetheless, we're going to step away for a minute and take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to preview Championship Saturday, and we're also going to offer you a tidbit about what it's going to take for Georgia. Yes, Georgia to get into the college football playoffs. So stick around, and we'll be right back. I'm Isaiah, the host of the 404. I'm 24, a reporter, and looking for my shot in sports radio. You see, Atlanta, to me, is the best city in the world, even with all of our traffic, crazy weather, and the sports collapses. You see, with this podcast, I don't want things to be about me, though. Instead, I want it to be a place, or a forum, if you will, where you, the fans, come to discuss the good, the bad, and even the ugly about sports in the 404. You see, forums came from ancient Rome as a place for them to discuss the events of the day. As we know, Rome was a place with art, music, and sports, all things the 404 is very well known for. And if the ancient Romans needed a place to sound off on the issues of the day, well, let's just say Atlanta sports fans are long overdue for theirs. New episodes will be dropping weekly, so please be sure to listen, like, subscribe, and leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And be sure to give us a like on Facebook at The 404. And let me hear your thoughts, opinions, and even hot takes on the happenings of the 404 sports world. Remember, it's a forum, so we always want to hear what you have to say. Hey, hey, everyone. We are back. This is Isaiah Smith, the host of 404. I'm back with you guys, ready to continue talking some college football. Um, just finished up a little Heisman talk, just finished up some uh, some some talk about, you know, some things related to Georgia. But going to kind of jump ahead and, and, and preview championship Saturday and not take a long time to jump across the, the whole lay of the land because there, you know, you got Big 12, you got Pac-12 ACCs on Saturday as well. But really keep it down south and talk about the SEC. Um, so really thinking about Alabama and Florida and kind of breaking this down and, and doing some prep and, and looking at notes and kind of thinking about the games that I've watched and both of the, both these teams play this year and seeing them both play Georgia. Um, you know, 
at the surface level, this looks like an Alabama blowout, along with Florida being under undermatched and undermanned in this game from the standpoint of their secondary and not, you know, not being able to do a lot of things on defense you need to, you need to do to win. Um, you know, is Florida, you asked the question, is Florida going to come out unmotivated after getting beat by LSU in kind of heartbreaking fashion, having the game won, getting a big stop, and then you know what happened, throwing the shoe, and then LSU gets the field goal, and so on and so forth. Um, so is Florida even motivated to play? Because with two losses, they're really on the outside looking in at the playoff discussion. They arguably would need more help than Georgia to get into the playoff. Um, just if you're we're being arbitrary about this thing, looking at the, the caliber of the teams they lost to and their performance over the last few weeks, there's an argument that they would need more help than Georgia to get in, a.k.a. they would need a, a big win and a Georgia loss to get in, oh, as well as losses by some other teams, you know, in, in the top four or five. So looking at, you know, Florida coming in, there's a lot of potential for this game to be a stinker, in my opinion, and a stinker in the in the respect that Florida just rolls over. Two losses, what are we here for? Why are we playing? Let you know, let's just come out here, get our get our get our t-shirt get beat, and go home. And that's really what I hope it's not. I hope this game doesn't turn into, a, oh, well, we're just here. I hope that's not what this thing turns into. I hope Florida comes out motivated, they're competitive, and they're ready to play. Um, however, I do think Florida's best chance is to turn this thing into a traditional Big 12 track meet, a big or a Big 12-style track meet. Um where both teams are going up and down down the field, and it seems like you know the first team to, to score 100 points is going to win this thing, win this game. But I think for Florida, you're saying, "Hey, we got to go in here, and we got to score every possession." And even though there's pressure there, it's a realistic thing to say, a strategy to have to win the game because looking across the field at Mac Jones and Alabama, they actually can score on your defense every possession if they want to. So I think for Florida, maximizing your opportunities with the football is going to be a key, getting points and hopefully more sevens than threes. If you're getting threes, that's still probably not going to be enough to, to beat Alabama because they're going to get sevens more often they're gonna, than they're going to get threes. But even so, um, I don't see Florida have, you know, having a real shot at stopping Alabama unless they can find, you know, just confuse Mac Jones on a couple of plays or, you know, have some inter- an interception or, a, you know, punch the ball away or something fluky. They get in with a strip sack. I don't see them being able to physically, turn, you know, make plays. Their secondary is not that good. They're not the greatest team at stopping the run either up front. Um, They get decent pass rush, but it's, it's nothing special, nothing to write home to mom about. So, with all that in mind, I think they're going to need some things to go their way, as you do if you're pulling an upset for most teams. Um, you know, either a stop, late, an interception, whatever. Um, but other than that, it's going to come down to scoring points. You know, this thing at it, this game at its worst is a blowout. Alabama comes out and blows doors, and it's never close. But at its best, this thing is an offensive shootout with both teams throwing blows. There's no period of the game where they feel each other out and have three and outs and run the ball a lot and do those kind of things. There's never a period of the game like that because Florida knows they've got to be in high gear from the start to to put points up and compete with Alabama. So the at, at its best, this game is an old-fashioned shootout. It's a slugfest, and it ends, you know, 58 to 54 or something like that. It's one of those types of games. Um and it's competitive, it's fun, it's fast-paced, it's high-scoring. It's what, you know, you 
want to see and kind of the opposite of what people think of when they think of SEC football and think of Alabama, um, you know, in, in a traditional sense. But nonetheless, I st- I'm still going to take Alabama. I'm not calling a Florida upset. I'm not advocating for any of that stuff to happen. However, um, I do hope it's an entertaining game, you know, from from the outsides looking in and understanding what, what I do and seeing what, I, what needs to happen for Georgia to have that 1% chance to get into the college football playoff and extend their season in a more meaningful way. Um, in seeing that, you know, I, you know, I hope Alabama wins and, but I want to see a competitive game. I want to see a game that's fun to watch. It's fun to view. Um, and, and hopefully we'll, you know, kind of, you know, make people see that, Hey, it's not just Alabama and then everybody else in the SEC. Um, but you know, just a fun game to watch is really what I'm rooting for there. Um, but kind of, you know, moving forward and looking beyond at the overarching lay of the land with, um, with the SEC, with the, the SEC and the college football playoff as a whole, um, let's, let's take a minute and, and sit down and kind of unpack here. Let's do a little bit of doomsday prepping, if you will. Um, you know, in thinking about a, a doomsday scenario, you know, what is the doomsday scenario that gets Georgia into the playoff. Because if you, you've you seen ESPN put out their um, playoff probability indicator or whatever you want to call it, Georgia had a 1% chance to get in coming into this weekend. And so with that 1% chance, let me tell you and, and give you the explanation for what that 1% chance looks like. And before you know, I start, I want to say it is literally a, so you're telling me there's a chance type of scenario. There's nothing here that makes me say, yep, this could really happen. This could really happen. Obviously, all these things could happen, but there's not, it's going to take some luck is what I'm saying. It's going to take some things going Georgia's way and, and some upsets being pulled off. But um, the, the top part is the easy part, I think. The top part is easy. Um, you need the favorites to win in the, in the, in, in the opening game, for the top seeds, for the high seeds, you need Alabama to come out and blow doors against Florida. You need Notre Dame to come out and, and, and beat Clemson, which is going to be the tougher of these three tasks. Um, and you need Ohio State to come out and win, win the Big Ten. I think those are the three things you need to happen. Alabama and Ohio State, I think, are as good as good as given. Notre Dame is going to be a test. Clemson is looking to get into the playoff. Then – you need Tennessee to do, give you some help. You need Tennessee to beat Texas A&M. You need Cincinnati to lose against Tulsa. And then you are probably going to need Iowa State to lose against Oklahoma. If you've seen the playoff rankings that came out Tuesday night, you know that Iowa State got a little bit more love. They've been progressively getting more love from the committee over the past few weeks. It is unbeknownst to me as a two-loss team, but nonetheless, you are probably going to need Iowa State to lose. Um, and then also Coastal Carolina. Coastal Carolina being the, the the team from outside the group of five, or being the group of five team from outside the power five, excuse me, um, being that team um, in the doomsday scenario, if they win, there's an argument for them to be in as an undefeated team, having the win over BYU and stepping out um, to play a, a more competitive game and, you know, those types of things. So all that in mind, you, you will need – all the teams in front of you to lose with the exception of an Alabama and Ohio State and Notre Dame um, for that matter. So UGA sitting at number, I believe, eight in the college football playoff ranking um, and ahead of Cincinnati at this point. So the Cincinnati argument may even fall back. Um, you know, you may not actually need Cincinnati to lose it since you're ranked ahead of them right now. But nonetheless, um, 
you would need Georgia. They would need to hopefully find an opponent this weekend. You hope it's a bona fide opponent. You hope it's an Iowa or potentially even an Ole Miss or an LSU, another SEC opponent. Um, but, you know, you hope you find an opponent just to get another game on film, even if it's a, a lesser opponent to to beat. You know, some get another game on film, get another number in your win column, those types of things. Um, but if those things can happen, there's a real shot that the committee looks at the lay of the land and says, who is the fourth best team in the country? And the answer comes to Georgia. Now, if that question is presented to the committee, who is the best two-loss team in, in, in the country looking for consideration for a playoff berth? You know, we've seen that recency of loss does play a factor depending on who the loss is to and things of that nature. Obviously, look at Clemson. Um, that's who we're looking at when we're talking about recency of loss is Clemson. The two losses to Notre Dame, and if the second one is convincing, you know, Notre Dame beats them, you know, 28 to 7, and Notre Dame comes out and beats them, you know, 63 to 28 or something like that, and just houses Clemson with their number one quarterback, with Trevor Lawrence, and with that team as a whole complete body and not, you know, with a backup quarterback or things of that nature. This could be the first time the, the committee looks unfavorably upon Clemson because a lot of people say when Clemson plays, they get Clemson rules and things like that. I'm not going that far per se, or at least not going that far here, but nonetheless, I am saying that the committee generally does look favorably upon Clemson for whatever reason. They, they've earned it to an extent. Um, I think they get some of it based off of past pedigree, but Clemson is generally looked upon favorably, as is Notre Dame. Both of those schools are. So I think with a Clemson win, they're probably, you know, both teams are in. But with a Notre Dame win and a convincing win, you could turn the committee against the Tigers. You know, a Big 12 champ in Oklahoma, this is the wild card to me. The Big 12 poses a wild card because a Big 12 champ in Oklahoma, um, I don't believe Oklahoma is one of the four best teams in the country. They would have losses at that point to Kansas State and Iowa State twice, or Kansas State and Iowa State, excuse me. Um, so with all, all that in mind, you know, the strength, you know, strength of Kansas State, strength of Iowa State, you have to pull all that into play and ask those questions. Same thing with a Big 12 champion in Iowa State. Um, even with the championship, I, it doesn't do it for me, you know. Iowa State arguably has a has the worst loss of all these teams, and losing to Louisiana, you know, that's not a great loss. Um, and also the loss to Oklahoma State isn't the worst loss in the Big Twelve in Big Twelve competition. A team who is still a solid football team, but the Big Twelve champion still is suspect to me. I don't believe a Big Twelve champion. If we're looking at which two loss team gets in, I don't believe a Big Twelve champion supersedes a two loss Georgia. Um, you know. An ACC runner-up in Clemson with the two losses like we talked about earlier, you know, a convincing victory by Notre Dame I think excludes Clemson. I think a victory by Notre Dame, period, would exclude Clemson, but definitely a convincing win by two, three, or, or, or three or more scores. Um, A&M losing to Tennessee, automatic disqualification there. Um, you know, Tennessee's just too weak to justify putting A&M in, even if they are sitting at number five um, and the committee's, you know, the way they're weighing losses and treat, treating those types of things this year that we've seen. Um, you know, Georgia with losses to Florida and Alabama, the two teams that played in your conference championship. Um, obviously, I think you've got a 
benefit. It benefits you if, if Alabama runs through Florida this weekend to just remove them from consideration. But then your biggest argument is, or the biggest discussion among the committee, I think, it, between Georgia and another school or two other schools or whoever, how does the committee view Georgia? And when I say that, I mean, are they viewed differently with JT Daniels? And that's where it's going to come down to. If we're in a situation where we're looking at two lost teams for who's going to be the fourth team in the college football playoff, it's going to come down. You know, Georgia clearly is one of the most talented teams. They're they're one of the better teams in the SEC, but one of the better teams in the country. We know that. But when we're looking at the four best teams in the country to go into a playoff for a national title, is the committee going to, going to rank and view Georgia better than, you know, a potential two-loss Florida, better than – two-loss Clemson, better than a two-loss Big 12 champion, better than a potentially undefeated Pac-12 champion in USC, even though they've only played five or six games. Is the committee going to say Georgia with JT Daniels, with those skill players doing what they're doing with, you know, under, you know, Munkin and JT Daniels here in the second half of the season, with the defense getting healthy, you know, of late and figuring some things out, are all of those things going to make Georgia the best two-loss team in the country? And depending on how the committee looks at it, we'll decide their fate if, if that if it comes down to that. You know, I look at that and I say absolutely. I think you know Clemson losing to Notre Dame twice. We we we've seen this. We get it. Um, I think every other scenario looking at that, you know, I think that puts that team below Georgia in a two-loss scenario. You know, we know Coastal Carolina is going to have to run the table. We know Cincinnati would have to run the table to get in. We know a loss by USC um, to Oregon, you know, would would exclude them. We know that, you know, looking at the team, a two-loss Big, Big 12 champion versus a two-loss, you know, Georgia, weighing their strength of schedule, weighing the strength of the teams that they have lost to, I still think looking at that and looking at what Georgia has become late in the season, I think Georgia sits ahead. Now, is the committee going to say that? I don't know. I don't have the numbers. I don't have their statistical breakdown. I don't have their whatever they use to make decisions. However, knowing what we know about the committee, knowing they're looking for the four best teams and probably the four best teams who are going to make some money, Georgia is probably a better pool than Iowa State. Georgia may be a better pool than USC. Georgia has some pool. They're going to make some money by putting them in the playoff. Now, is that one of the teams they want in there? Absolutely not. But if it comes down to it, I think the dogs have a fair chance, all things considered. All things, you know, obviously we know what the what has to happen. We've got to have a doomsday scenario take place on Saturday. But, but at, you know, 11 o'clock on Saturday, if we're sitting here and those things are taking place, which all of them happening is the ultimate parlay, I guess. But if all of those things happen and you complete the parlay there, I think on Sunday it will be George's name called. I, I think the 1% will play out and will happen. But, you know, speaking in terms of, you know, likely things happen, you know, and all those things could happen, and there's a million different ways they could happen, and the order of them could be switched up and changed. But nonetheless, what's most likely to happen, I think we're looking at either, you know, in some order, Alabama, Notre Dame, Ohio State, Clemson. I think, you know, Clemson comes out and handles business on Saturday. I really do. Clemson will handle business against Notre Dame. However, Notre Dame 
if it's a closed matchup, Notre Dame will still be in. They've earned the right to be in. Know that they're not normally an ACC team. You know, how is the committee going to weigh that? I don't think they'll be they'll be treated like Notre Dame, not like a second-place ACC team, and that will get them in. You know, Notre Dame gets blown out. We're having another discussion. But I still think Notre Dame has earned their spot. Alabama, as long as they don't get beat 200 to nothing, they're in the playoff. Um, Ohio State will be the pe- peculiar one. Um, you know, if Northwestern knocks them off a one-loss Big Ten champion Northwestern, are they good enough to get in? Probably so. So, you know, Big Ten Championship is a play-in game. Um, SEC Championship, in essence, is somewhat of a play-in game. If, if Florida can convincingly beat Alabama, maybe they do deserve to be in. Maybe that's, another, that's something the committee gives a second look. Same thing with Notre Dame and Clemson. A close, a close game puts both teams in. So I think we're looking at some of the, uh, the same usual suspects in that game in Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, Notre Dame. It's just a matter of what order they're going to be in and how the committee is going to rank them. Um, heading into into the playoff. But, you know, kind of the last point here, last thing to talk about um, before we head out and, and wrap the show, um, we're seeing a lot of teams opt out. We've already seen some teams kind of call it for the year to allow their kids to go home, um, be with their families for the holidays, which is so understandable, especially for a team like a Vanderbilt or a team that's only, you know, isn't really, hasn't been competitive, has had COVID issues, has had, you know, issues keeping guys on campus, having guys transfer out or, or leave for safety reasons or whatever. Um, you know, it makes sense, but we're seeing some teams opt out, seeing, you know, decline invitations to bowl games in this weird year where everyone's bowl eligible. So it begs the question, you know, does the college football playoff devalue bowl games? And not to dig too deeply into this, because we could talk about this for, for days and days and days on end, but I say absolutely. And I've been saying that for years from the time the playoff began. Um, it didn't happen all at once. But slowly and slowly, as more teams got a piece of the pie and, and a, more, a few more teams made the playoff, you know, we still haven't seen the playoff open up to mass teams. We haven't seen a playoff in a year where it's, you know, Oregon, Florida, Penn State, and, you know, another Big 12 team or, or whatnot. You know, we've still seen the same usual suspects in the playoff, give or take a few years of Michigan State here or Washington there. Um, but nonetheless, you know, before the college football playoff, just looking at Georgia, the standard, and for most teams, the standard was win your division, play for your conference, and get to that New Year's Six berth, Rose Bowl, Sugar Bowl, Cotton Bowl, whatever it was. You know, for Georgia, win the East, play for the SEC title, get to the Sugar Bowl. That used to be the standard. But now, that's not, it, that doesn't feel good enough almost anymore. Yes, winning the East has become a bit of an expectation over the past couple of years, thanks to Curry Smart and the job he's done. But win the East, expectation. Play for the SEC, expectation. And so playing for, in playing for the SEC, you think that is either a play-in game, an elimination game, or it's either a game where, hey, the team one team has played so well that if they lose, both teams will get in kind of a situation. Or you put yourself in a position kind of like Alabama a few years ago, put yourself in a position where um, if the team that beats you doesn't win – doesn't win the playoff game, you've put together such a strong resume that you get in anyway, like the year Georgia and Alabama played for the national title. But win the East, it feels like a consolation prize. If you win the SEC, but it's not for a, a playoff berth, a la Florida this weekend potentially, it almost feels like a consolation prize. It feels like it's it's not 
good enough. Because the playoff is, is the end-all, be-all. And opening that national championship up to four teams and giving everyone a chance to literally play themselves into it and not have a computer look at a bunch of advanced metrics and things like that to decide and having you know human factors deciding into that, it's almost like opening that up has made everyone kind of salivate to be there and want to be there and have their chance and want to, to, to have their piece of the pie in that way. Um, the playoff is a chance for national relevancy to be on that national stage and, you know, giving teams that platform, the platform to come out and have four teams duke it out for a title has almost devalued the rest of bowl season, which is a little unfortunate. It, you know, you're, you fast few years, you see guys opt out of the lesser bowls or lower bowls um, that, that aren't even even some New Year's six bowls. You see some guys opt out of. And I think that's only going to be accelerated in the coming years um so by expanding the playoff to eight teams 10 teams 16 teams whatever it looks like you're giving more teams that chance on that national stage more teams a piece of the pie both for the attention and the money and also ask oklahoma this past season ask alabama in 2019 ask georgia the past two seasons you know, especially this season with the with the second loss coming up in the year, the fans aren't as engaged when there's not a chance to play for a title in these programs where the expectation is to compete for a title. You know, Georgia, Oklahoma, Alabama, Texas, those teams, the standard and expectation is we should compete for national titles. So when you've been taken out of contention, not only is the team seemingly a little less engaged, not always, but at times, you know, Georgia at times, you know, could seem a little less engaged on the field, even though the coaches are doing their jobs, working hard to make sure those guys stay engaged, stay healthy, stay, you know, out of COVID protocol, out of quarantine, and can compete every week and get better. There are still times where it feels like the engagement wanes. And especially from a fan standpoint, we've gotten spoiled to where, you know, to the point of where Georgia's playing for a shot to every game matters to be in an, a playoff and make a playoff berth. When you don't have that, the luster kind of wanes. The, the the attraction and allure to college football kind of wanes. And so in keeping fans engaged, keeping teams engaged, keeping um, you know, bringing people into the sport, I think it would be wise for the committee and those in charge to explore expansion of the playoff. I think the more meaningful high stakes football games you have in the months of December and January, the better. And I will never come off of that, that premise and that idea. The more meaningful high stakes football games you can have, that's never a bad thing. More football is good but meaningful high stakes football is just better. As they say down south, it just means more. So with all that in mind, I do think that that you know, the playoff has taken some of this luster off the bowl games for, you know, whatever the belk, whatever whatever basketball bowl or whatever. Um it has taken some of the luster off of it. But nonetheless, you know, I, I don't think that's a change that will be made anytime in in the very near future. Um, I think if there were a year to try it, this would have been it. But no, with you know the odd COVID situation and those types of things, this would have been the year. But nonetheless, I do think it's something that the committee should look into, especially as guys get more comfortable 
stepping away, opting out, looking to prepare for the NFL, try to improve their draft stock um, instead of in, in games, even though in games is the best place to improve your draft stock, improve your, um, you know, show scouts, what you can do. Go ask Jake Fromm if you're a Georgia fan. Jake Fromm balls in the Sugar Bowl last year and decides not to come back to Georgia. It, it was that simple. Jake Fromm balled, throwing the ball to George Pickens, and decides not to come back to Georgia. It was that simple. Um, even though his combine numbers maybe tanked him a little bit, the Sugar Bowl is what put him into, into you know, made guys think, hey, yeah, Jake Fromm can spin it at the next level. So and, and, and he ended up going there. So with all that, again, with all that in mind, I think it would be wise of the committee of those in charge to consider expansion of the playoff. But until they do, I still think you're going to see the opt-outs. You're still going to see um, some fan bases become disengaged as their teams are eliminated from contention and things of that nature. So just something to think about, just something to, to, to bounce around in your head as we see this playoff picture and postseason kind of take shape over the next couple weeks and into this weekend and into the next weekend as well. Um, it'll all be fun to see it shake out and watch it uh, watch it happen and unfold in a weird year and probably that'll continue to get weirder if I know it before it's all said and done here in a few in a couple weeks. So um, with all that being said, thank you guys for listening this week. It was a joy talking to you guys. Hope to be back next week and get some guests on. Um, hopefully, hopefully going to talk some hot stove with some baseball as that heats up. Um, hopefully some teams will begin making moves. Hopefully the Braves will make a move. Um, I have a feeling a big move is in store for the Braves. I don't know what it will be, but I have a feeling and hope that it is a big move in one of a few. And we'll discuss those in the coming weeks. And also with the NBA getting started back, it's been fun to see um, see that sport come back and see the NBA kind of be back on TV um, in the right time as opposed to in late August when it feels like it shouldn't be there. So um, all that will definitely be a joy to watch and something to to keep an eye on as we go forward. But thank you guys for listening. Um, it's been a pleasure as always. Um, be sure to check us out um, on Anchor, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Um, again, thank you for listening. Be sure to leave some comments. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know um, what you want to hear, some things you want to see, or give us just some feedback or comments or something you want us to talk about um, or a question you may have even. So um, be sure to do all that. Check us out on Facebook at the 40 Forum. Um, as always, I'm Isaiah. Thank you guys for listening and I'll talk to you next week.